Well, good afternoon. Let me welcome everyone to the Cato Institute's Friedrich Hayek Auditorium. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Associate Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. And it's my pleasure to welcome you here for our book forum today for our friend John C. Holzman's new book, To Begin the World Over Again, Lawrence of Arabia from Damascus to Baghdad. Uh, John Holzman is a longtime, I think it's safe to say, friend of Cato in good standing uh, and also senior partner and director of research and the co-founder of Kaleidoscope LLP, a risk consulting firm that specializes in an exploration of the Indian Ocean Pacific Rim. Uh, John is also president and co-founder of John C. Holzman Enterprises, an international relations consulting firm. Prior to this, John was the Alfred von Oppenheim Scholar-in-Residence at the German Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin, where he handled transatlantic and Middle East portfolios. He's a frequent commentator on policy issues and has made regular appearances on a range of media outlets, including the alphabet soups of ABC, CBS, CNN, BBC, and Fox News, and has written over 200 published articles on international relations for a range of publications, including the Financial Times, International Herald, Tribune, Policy Review, Newsweek, and the list goes on. He served as a contributing editor at the National Interest, a senior research fellow in international relations at the Heritage Foundation, and a fellow in European studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. He's taught European security studies at Johns Hopkins University School of Inter Advanced International Studies, SICE, down the street, and world politics and U.S. foreign policy at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Holzman has traveled extensively and lived in Scotland for seven years while earning his doctorate and master's degrees in modern history and international relations from the University of St. Andrews. So without further ado, we'll begin things with John Holzman. Thank you very much, Justin. It's great to be back in the States. It's always fun to come home. Um, and uh, when I hear that introduction, it reminds me of my great friend, Will Sherano, who used to work with me at the Heritage Foundation. And when he would hear the introduction, he would lean over to me and pass me a note. And the note always invariably said the same thing. It said, gee, we really need to meet that guy sometime. Um, and so I will try to live up to that, that somewhat Washington introduction. Thank you, Justin. It reminds me of why I'm glad to be here. Um, I'm going to talk about, I think, one of the most fascinating men in history. But first, I want to explain why it is I bothered writing yet another biography of Lawrence of Arabia. Other than Winston Churchill, he is the most commented upon Englishman of the 20th century. There is at least three plays that I have found. Of course, the great David Lean movie. Uh, there is, in fact, a uh, website devoted entirely to every word Lawrence has ever written. There is a small group of scholars who frighten me greatly, uh, who actually do a yearly uh, colloquium on Lawrence. One year as diplomatist, one year as something else. So there's a cult following here for Lawrence of Arabia. So why in the world would I add uh, to this cult following? And I think the reason is, is that I wanted to write a very different kind of biography. And as I say in the book, I make it very clear. I have found absolutely no new documentary evidence. This is not a PhD. I did not sit in a library for 20 years. As Justin told you, I'm busy running a, a real business in the real world. And that's basically why I wrote the book. 
because back when I lived in the unreal world here in Washington, uh, I served on a number of uh, think tank uh, groupings uh, as task forces, as they are somewhat grandly called, uh, two particularly for the Council on Foreign Relations, where I'm, I'm a member. And this was about the time of the Iraq War. And one of them was on the very simple notion that we're going to win and somebody's going to have to make the power work the next day. So what do we do? Nuts to bolts, how do we make this place work? And then how do we think about longer-term things coming out of that? And then as Iraq began to go terribly, terribly wrong, of course, invariably, council instinctively said we need another task force on why it's gone terribly, terribly wrong and actually look at how to do nation-building uh, in detail, what works, what doesn't work. And these two stories kind of led me to Lawrence, and let me try to link that up. Um, the second one is, is, in a way, the most important. Um, another, and I'll protect the guilty, another think tank was hired by this think tank uh, to go through all the cases of modern nation building really since the fall of the wall. And they were to look at Somalia, Haiti, Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq, and find best practices. This is all very safe Washington stuff. Find best practices, find the jewel in the crown, and then we'll proceed that way, and we'll just replicate that over and over and over again, because, of course, history, politics, ethnology, sociology, and local culture don't matter at all. I mean, what is that compared to sensible people in Washington talking about how the world should be run? And this occurred to me as I was sitting there listening to the great and the good, no words of dissent about any of this. There are 40 people in the room, not one word of dissent about maybe we should know more about the people we're talking about individually. We can find these best practices and move on. And after listening to this for a couple hours, and yes, all the people you see on TV were in the room, um, after listening to this for a couple hours, they decided that Kosovo was the jewel in the crown. This was the most successful of them all. What they hadn't done is read the newspaper that week because, of course, the Kosovan Albanians had reverse ethnically cleansed the Serbs. And the reason we were there in the first place was on a far larger scale. The Serbs had cleansed the Kosovan Albanians. Nobody thought to mention the political problem. Read their Clausewitz. These are political problems with military overtones that the Serbian national unity card was in direct contradiction of the, of the regional Albanian desire for autonomy, if not independence. That didn't come up. Um, and it struck me that if this was the great example of success, we're in real trouble. And nobody thought to say anything. I found this extraordinary and left the room. Back to my Iraq task force. I was sitting in the room there where it was made very clear to me by a group of very excited people that the key to success in Iraq was injecting Western institutional norms into the country as fast as we possibly could. Because, of course, they were on their knees. Now is the time to move forward. And the one that got me in particular was women's rights. 20, 20th, as it was said, or 21st century, I think they were looking ahead slightly, 21st century standards of women's rights, and that the person we had to talk to to make this work was Grand Ayatollah Sistani. I thought about this for a minute. I could see the council members working their way through the teeming streets of Najaf to talk to the representatives of the Grand Ayatollah. He will not directly talk to us which should, by the way, give us a hint as to what's going on here. And we were going to say something like this. We need you to get out of Iraq. You are the only person within the Shia community, the dominant community in Iraq, with autonomy. You, you have local legitimacy. It's not Jeffersonian, but you have legitimacy. When you tell Muqtada al-Sadr to stop something, occasionally he does. And you have the biggest following. And we need your help if we're ever to get out of Iraq in any kind of shape, politically. But before we talk about that, 
I want you to adopt our standards of 21st century views of women's rights, and I want you to do it immediately. I want you to give up your entire life's views and do what we say. And it struck me that despite his reputation for saintliness, that the Grand Ayatollah's response would probably be unprintable. And it occurred to me that this goes on over and over and over again, these two examples, and that this is indeed the problem. The fact is, we have a failed philosophy of nation building. And whether you look at Haiti, Bosnia, Kosovo, Somalia, Afghanistan, Iraq, which are one word in my office, uh, you have the same failed policy. Top-down, outsiders telling people what to do doesn't work very well. Forget the moral notions of this. It just doesn't work very well for the simple reasons that those of us who are Burkeans ought to understand. When you grow a plant, if you graft something onto it that is foreign to that plant, it rejects it. It rejects it. That doesn't mean these people are worse than us. That means they're different. It means there are differences in the world. It means there isn't one glorious Hegelian route forward to progress. And all we need as an example is Haiti, Bosnia, Somalia, Afghanistan, Iraq. We've intervened in Haiti how many times in the 20th century? And it's still the second poorest place on the planet. President Clinton went into Somalia where he backed one set of warlords over the other, imposing winners and losers, left when there were casualties because we had no discernible interests, and now it's a black hole in the Horn of Africa with an increasing al-Qaeda presence. In Bosnia today, if two of the three ethnic groups held free and fair elections, they would vote to leave the country. In Kosovo, despite our efforts to jam independence through the UN, the Russians didn't allow that, and it doesn't matter anyway because the people really holding power are the international community. The viceroy, as I call him there, is in charge. In Afghanistan, and this is almost unfair, President Karzai is doing a passable impersonation of President Diem of South Vietnam. He's arrogant, corrupt, and incompetent, which is the trifecta. And now we're in a position where we're going to decide whether their elections were free or fair. Outsiders are going to tell them if their elections were free or fair. There's a, that's a no-win scenario, whichever way they do that. And Karzai, although certainly more now than just the mayor of Kabul, certainly his remit does not extend throughout that country. The Taliban, indeed, are on the rise. And Iraq is, well, Iraq. Don't buy the nonsense that somehow the surge has been successful in Iraq. The reason the surge was created, if you read what General Petraeus actually wrote, very sensible man, the surge, and he does know his Clausewitz, the surge was designed to give a political space for the Iraqis to do three specific things. He named them. One, disarm militias. That hasn't happened at all. In fact, if you disarm militias in the north of the country, there'd be no one running the place. The Peshmerga. There'd be nothing. That's totally otherworldly goal. Secondly, that we'll bring on board the sons of Iraq, the Sunni awakening people who, who did, in an organic way, throw out al-Qaeda. We'll bring them into the national government. No deal. They're viewed, of course, as a threat to the Shia dominant group. Makes perfect sense if you're an Iraqi. And third, we will somehow unite the country around oil revenue. We will divide oil, which is the lifeblood of the country. It's a one-crop economy. We will unite the country around dividing oil revenue. That deal is still in Parliament, and indeed the Kurds are now making separate deals, which are entirely illegal, according to Iraq's constitution, with outside British Petroleum and people like that. That doesn't strike me as a raging success. So if you go down this list, you have to ask yourself, why? And the why is top-down, outside, foreign-dominated nation-building that makes the West the star in the show of another person's national liberation is unlikely to work very well. So what would you put in its place? The only question one is asked, uh, and ought to be asked in Washington, what should you put in its place? 
And when I was looking at all this, I couldn't stand it in this meeting anymore, even though I was the junior person and probably the only Republican in the room. I was always used for balance because I was a non-neoconservative Republican. I was in high demand for task forces at the time. I wouldn't bite anyone. I wouldn't scream at them. And, uh, and they could always have me write the dissenting opinion. I often began that the first day of any task force. I finally got up and I said, better they build it badly than we build it well because it's their way, their culture, and our time here is short. And it sounded very good. I said, I said, wow, that's pretty good. And people listened. There was an appreciative buzz. And then Fareed went back to talking about whatever it is Fareed talks about. And I got back to the office to Will Sharano, and I said, I heard this really rather wonderful quote, and I knew it wasn't me. Who said that? And he said, in half an hour, because he's a magician, Lawrence of Arabia said that. And I said, that's really interesting. Look up everything that this guy thought. Put it in my book bag, and I'll read it. And that's how I began my journey in the desert with the colonel. Through palpable failures here, through a desire to look for something better, I went back in time to August 1917, when an increasingly famous subaltern was typing in the wastes of the Arabian desert. The British were very like the Americans, and in many ways still are. I spent 10 years living there, and I love them in a kind of love-hate way. Um, the Brits after Aqaba, when Lawrence literally comes out of the sun, he started this, this invasion with 36 men. That was it. He had one tiny sliver of the Hawatat tribe of northern Arabia. But he knew two things. He could collect local people as he went. The guns at Aqaba, as anyone who's seen the Great Lean movie, don't turn around. And nobody in their right mind thinks that they're going to come out of the desert, which is 800 miles of some of the most inhospitable terrain in the world. And so with these 36 people, he ended up with 4,000, and he took this place without anyone in Britain knowing what he was doing. He didn't report in, he didn't write a note, and they didn't have a task force. He just did it. And the British, when they heard about this remarkable uh, accomplishment, uh, he went back and reported to General Allenby, sent him back out in the desert, and he started running a very successful guerrilla campaign as to, as to how to uh, unseat the Ottomans, who were, who were the ruling people of, of the time. And they didn't tell him what to do then either. And it occurred to them that this guy was a total loose cannon. And what happens if he dies? He's out fighting a guerrilla war. He's dynamiting trains. He could be killed at any minute. And so the British had a meeting. And at the meeting, they said, we've got to get this guy and find out how he works his magic with the locals. And so he might die, and we need to know who could be his successor. And so Lawrence was forced to stop what he was doing and write a memo in the middle of the desert about how to deal with local people. And the memo is called the 27 Articles. And I think it is one of the most interesting guides for how to deal with local people that I've certainly ever read. I felt a bit like Indiana Jones. I'm blowing the dust off this document. And the only people who know about it are Lawrence fanatics, the little cult all knew about it. Uh, but nobody else really did. And when I read these kind of 27 articles as to how to deal with locals, it occurred to me that we had done exactly the opposite in almost every case throughout modern times, that we had adopted what was known at the time as the French model, Meaning, when the French took over a colonial possession, they immediately instituted a few things. One, everyone would speak French. The language of government was French. Two, high society would be French. You would ape, the locals would ape French fashion, French culture, etc. And that this was the way they indeed made it work. Lawrence said, despised the French in a lot of ways. This was certainly one of them. He said this is exactly the opposite. But the French model won out for a variety of reasons I point out in the book. But here are just a couple of the things that Lawrence said that I think that we've lost over time. Um, one, he said, local organic development, specific cultural knowledge, and an emphasis on the particular are the keys to successful nation building. And by this, he meant 
what you have to do is, instead of having the French view, work with the people who were there. Uh, he's aware, for instance, he said, when a Westerner is in charge of anything, he made it a point that on every raid, he was not in charge. He was the advisor. They were in charge. It was an Arab war fought for Arab aims in Arabia, as he pointed out in a rather pithy sentence in Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And that if it weren't that, it wouldn't work because there would not be stakeholders in a war for their own national regeneration. You could help them, but you couldn't do it for them. And there is a huge semantical difference between that and what I hear from nation builders in Washington. That is not a difference just in terminology. That is a difference in philosophy. Uh, for instance, one time, one of the commanders that Lawrence was with actually was ill, and so he had to take charge. And he wrote in his diary out in the desert, I had to be officer in charge of the whole expedition. This is not a job which should be undertaken by foreigners, since we have no so, not so intimate a knowledge of Arab families. I had to adjudicate in 12 cases of assault, four camel thefts, one marriage settlement, 14 feuds, two evil eyes, and a bewitchment. These affairs take up a ball of one's spare time. <clears throat> Obviously, he was out of his depth, and he was an ethnologist. He had been there. He had lived there. He'd worked at Carchemish, a dig before the war. But even he couldn't do that in the same way that a local could. The job is to advise in a medieval kind of feudal way. That's the way that Lawrence looked at it, which is different. Second, as I said, he'd read his Clausewitz. We do not have military problems. If I hear one more time, it's the number of troops that matter anywhere we are. No, it's the political realities on the ground and how those troops, as General Petraeus, got right about the surge. You can buy yourself space to do political things, but it's the political things that matter, ultimately. If you don't do those, you have to stay forever or leave. And if you leave, the whole thing will fall apart. And if you stay forever, congratulations, you've got yourself a colony. And in a country with a $9 trillion debt over the next 10 years, I might add, this probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, Lawrence talked about the, the thing that mattered. He said, we seldom had to concern ourselves about what our men did, but much about what they thought, how they felt about the war that they were actually fighting in. The British up to then had had Arabs fight like British people. They all got in a line. They marched forward to a trench as they had at Medina, and they're mowed down. But they'd never seen airplanes, these people, before. They'd never seen artillery shells. They never heard what that sounded like, the concussive effect of that. It frightened the animals. It frightened the men. And at the time Lawrence came to Arabia, they were almost losing the war. It was almost shut down. Lawrence said, the Bedou, the Bedouin, the Bedou used the desert like a ship uses the sea. Let's go back to the things they're good at. They understand. They can, they can go for 1,000 miles in the desert on a camel. Okay? The Turks can't. They don't know where they're going. Uh, they don't have the camels. They don't have the local knowledge. So if we go back to what actually brought the Arabs to the dance and how they fight, rather than fighting like little Englishmen, we might do better. And so that is, I think, a very important insight. Third, Lawrence never forgot that for Faisal and the Arabs, the ultimate goal of the war was political, to forge an Arab nation. For nation building to be successful, determining the local unit of politics is vital. And often in the rest of the world, it just might not be Jeffersonian for all you neocons out there. It just might not be Jeffersonian, but that doesn't mean that other people don't have legitimacy. Sometimes a warlord has legitimacy. He has precedent. He has the backing of his people. Uh, the greatest example in the book is a, my favorite character in the book, the Hawatad tribesman Audu al-Butai, who killed 75 people, not counting Turks, but he said he didn't think they should count. Um, he ate people's hearts. He kept slave labor that the League of Nations didn't like after the war. He is not, by UN standards, terribly uh, one of the good guys. And yet Auda won at Aqaba. 
Auda brought the Hawatat into the war and defeated the Ottoman Empire. Auda was the only game in town because he was a river to his people. He gave everything away, and he observed the social mores of the area. Lawrence didn't say, I don't want to work with Auda because I don't think he's according to league standards. He realized that Auda was the only game in town. You have to work with local culture as you find it, rather than looking to add water and get George Washington or listening to Mr. Chalabi, who pretends to be George Washington, without any local control at all. Um, so for him, the politics was the tribe, and he made it a point of fighting with every one of the different tribes to show no favoritism. Sometimes with the Juhima, sometimes with the Harb, sometimes with the Billy, sometimes with the Hawatat. He never was involved in picking winners and losers in that process. Um, which leads me to the fourth point. The one person he saw who did have legitimacy was Prince Faisal. Faisal had legitimacy for a number of very non-Jeffersonian reasons. His father was keeper of the holy places of Mecca and Medina. Okay, now that's not a, something you run for, but in the Arab world, that was extremely important. Extremely important and conferred legitimacy on the Hashemite family. Uh, he spoke the local dialect of the various tribes. He had been their leader and he knew all the chiefs from childhood. He had worked with these people his entire life, and as a result, he had legitimacy. Again, not Madisonian, but legitimacy nonetheless. And Lawrence didn't say, gee, I'm not going to work with you because your father's a king. He said, you're the only game in town. I will work with you. Um, one of the problems when you pick winners and losers is that you actually hurt the very people uh, who you like best. If they are seen as too close to you, they're likely to be tainted as a Western stooge. This actually became Prince Faisal's fate later when he becomes king of Iraq, when he doesn't know the local dialect, he doesn't know the history, he doesn't know the people, the British install him and go back to the old top-down system, and as a result, in the 30-some years of Hashemite rule of Iraq, there were 30-some coups. It was almost a coup a year. So it was a very unstable system for the simple reason of legitimacy, which was the key to Lawrence's thinking. And perhaps most importantly of all, Lawrence believed, fifthly, that nation-building would not succeed unless it was advanced by the locals themselves that this was the, absolutely the key, that you can work with someone, but that in the end they had to make up their mind um, as to whether they would be independent. And in the end, they lived there, as Lawrence put it. And this was really the culmination of that reality for him. The one last thing that Lawrence understood was that local knowledge is paramount. I mean, I remember reading uh, David Halberstam's great book on Vietnam. And the Kennedy guys, for all their glittering pedigree, couldn't have passed an intro course to Vietnamese history, ethnology, sociology, culture, anything. I remember going to meetings of the council about Iraq where we were trying to find oil guys who'd been in Iraq in the 60s to tell us what was going on currently. And remember, Mr. Chalabi had last been in Baghdad when the Dodgers played baseball in Brooklyn in 1958, before I was born, as I pointed out to him. What kind of legitimacy does that mean? You cannot transform a society of which you know nothing. That should be obvious. And Lawrence said the secret to the handling of the Arabs is the unremitting study of them. And if you don't know anything, you can't possibly be successful. Just to conclude, uh, what are a couple of modern lessons we can learn from Lawrence's general view? Um, again, you have to know the unit of politics, and it won't always be the one that you like. Talking about Iraqis instead of the Sunni, the Shia, and the Kurds doesn't explain very much. Uh, that's a good example for that. Um, you have to then address, adjust political structures to the world. You find we always go in and say, let's overly centralize control in a country where nation building is probably being instituted because that state fell apart in the first place without looking at the forces that made it fall apart. Meaning, centralized control of one group or another in a country that has these disparate forces probably is artificial and probably won't work, hence Faisal in Iraq. 
A better model would be a confederal model that actually suits people on the ground. That's the reality on the ground. For Lawrence, the Arab tribe was the model. And that is about as decentralized as you could possibly have it. In the two years that Faisal was king of Syria after the war, Greater Syria, uh, which was the area he and Lawrence were fighting in, despite the French subverting it, despite the Great War just having ended, it was a stable polity. Why? All power was dispersed, which fit the facts in Greater Syria, not in Greater Washington. And that's a very important point to make. To work against the grain of history is to fail, to impose Western standards on failed non-Western states while disregarding their unique culture is a doomed undertaking. Uh, one of my favorite moments of the council, and there are many, was the idea that we're going to limit the role of Islam when we talk to Grand Ayatollah, notice his title, Sistani. That's not a real good way to get the Grand Ayatollah to support you. Uh, and the idea that we think we can is worse than arrogant. It's insane. Fourth, if at all possible, don't support artificial states. Don't, don't do it, because you either then are caught in the imperial trap where you have to stay forever and you colonize them, or you get out and the thing falls apart. Be very careful that the state building that you're asking to be done can be accomplished, can be done. Fifth, it's local elites who must be the primary stakeholders in any successful nation-building process. Not the rhetoric of this, but the reality of this. That is the absolute vital point. Faisal was running the show. It wasn't a trick. Lawrence did take orders from Faisal rather than giving them. Um, sixth, beyond the broadest, you're not Al-Qaeda parameters, we shouldn't pick winners and losers in countries. Because the minute we do that, it, this isn't some misty-eyed anti-colonial view, but it's down to the fact that by proceeding in such a manner, only by doing this, can local organic legitimacy take root. And without local legitimacy, you will fail. That is the definition of it working. When the locals accept what's being done as part of their way and their culture, you have a chance. And by the way, the Republican Party, which says social engineering people in America is a bad idea, shouldn't be social engineering people in the rest of the world. I mean, this to me is, is the greatest failure of the neoconservatives. It's okay to socially engineer the rest of the world, but we just don't want it in America. For all the reasons they were right domestically, they should apply those reasons to the rest of the world, of which we know less than we do about the United States. And lastly, given the hideous complexities of this process, wherever it is, the world is a complicated place. Anyone, beware of anyone after Iraq telling you how easy anything is. If Michael Ledeen says it's easy one more time, someone should take him away. Okay? It's not easy. It's incredibly difficult, societies, cultures, etc. This is work of the highest order and should only be attempted when it is an absolutely vital American national interest. Wait, you say that means we wouldn't do a number of these. Correct. We wouldn't do most of them. And I'll tell you why. A, it's, com it, it's incredibly complicated. It will take time. It will cost money. It will cost lives. And the political will will not hold to do it if it isn't in the American interest. I've literally had senior nation-building people say, but John, if we do that, our entire profession would cease to exist. And I said, well, I could probably live with that. The two that come to mind that actually worked and that I would argue matter are Germany and Japan. And let's look at the differences. We told the Germans to be capitalists. This is part of German culture. In the 15th century, they were capitalists. Anybody ever been to the Hanseatic League headquarters? We had a bunch of Native Americans. They were doing trade with each other. So to tell the Germans to be capitalists was not outside of their cultural understanding. To tell the Germans to be decentralized was not out of their understanding. Why? They only had become a nation in 1871. They were used to the Holy Roman Emperor, a bunch of little states uh, that, that get together every once in a while but do very little centrally. That made sense. Lander. The German state, the German county, 
makes sense how the Bundesrat is set up. That's what they do. MacArthur knew absolutely nothing about the United States political culture, but he knew a great deal about Japanese political culture. Reforming Shogun, coming in, leaving the emperor in a titular role, and launching agrarian reform. That's exactly what happened in the Meiji Restoration and the Tokugawa Shogunate. This wasn't new. This was a very old Japanese cultural impulse, and that's why it succeeded. Those are the only two examples I can think where you can argue to me that those are, those are nation-building efforts of necessity. And they were sold as such. This will take time. This will cost money. This won't go well. And indeed, we may fail. We won't be home by Christmas. I remember President Clinton saying we would be home from one of the Balkan countries by Christmas. And I remember at Heritage saying, which Christmas did he have in mind? We are constantly lying to our people about this, the complexity of this. And the reason is that might then lead to a questioning of the mission itself. And that's what we need to do, question far more the mission itself, because we keep failing at this, because we don't have the political will to stay, because people question whether these places are indeed in our national interests. That is exactly the dialogue we should have. That is exactly the argument, whether you're in favor or against, that we should have. If you're in favor, you should favor such an approach, because you should articulate to the American people clearly for both moral and practical reasons what you're doing. Lawrence said, the reason we're doing this is because we can subvert the Ottoman Empire, and if Turkey goes out of the war, this will lead to the collapse of Austria-Hungary, and if they're out of the war, it will lead indirectly to the collapse of Germany and will win the war. Okay? That's an argument you can make. We can debate that, but he firmly believed that reality and proceeded accordingly. He didn't pretend it would be easy, but he explained the interest to the people, and as a result, they stuck it out through some very bad times. The reason we don't stick it out is not that Americans have attention deficit disorder. It's that it isn't explained to them why this is important in the first place. Simply saying something is a war of necessity or a war of choice is not an argument. It's a bumper sticker. We need to have these arguments. And through someone like Lawrence, we can begin to. Thank you. Thanks very much, John. It occurs to me that the, I think the last time we were on this dais together was at, at a book forum for a previous book of yours with Anatole Levin, and we had a very uh, vibrant exchange at that event. So I hope that we'll have some, uh, some sharp criticism from our commentators here today as well. Uh, the first will be Daniel P. Serwer, who's the vice president of the Centers of Innovation at the United States Institute of Peace. Uh, the Centers of, Insta of Innovation focus on a range of uh, topics, including rule of law, religion and peacemaking, sustainable economies, media and conflict, science, technology, and peacebuilding, and diaspora contributions to peace and to conflict. He originally came to the Institute as a senior fellow working on Balkan regional security in 1998 and in 1999. Before that, he was Minister-Counselor at the Department of State, where he won six performance awards. As State Department Director of European and Canadian Analysis in 96 and 97, he supervised the analysts who tracked Bosnia and Dayton implementation, as well as the deterioration of the security situation in Albania and in Kosovo. He served from 94 to 96 as U.S. Special Envoy and Coordinator to the Bosnian Federation, mediating between Croats and Muslims and negotiating the first agreement reached at the Dayton Peace Talks. From 90 to 93, he was Deputy Chief of Mission and Chargé d'Affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Rome, where he led a major diplomatic mission through the end of the Cold War and the first Gulf War. So some 
excellent experience in nation building and, uh, and in these sorts of endeavors broadly over a, great, a large period of time. Let me also briefly introduce my, my friend and my boss, Christopher A. Preble, who will be our second commentator today. He's the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato and recently published a book with Cornell University Press entitled The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. Uh, he was also the author of uh, Exiting Iraq, How the U.S. Must End the Occupation and Renew the War Against Al-Qaeda, and the uh, uh, terrific book, to my mind, John F. Kennedy and the Missile Gap, which I think was also his Ph.D. dissertation uh, from Temple University. Uh, he has also appeared on the range of, of media outlets. I'll spare the, the alphabet soup this time and a number of broadcast media as well. He Previously to joining Cato, he taught history at St. Cloud University and at Temple University and also was a uh, commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy serving on board the USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993. So with that, I'll turn things over to Daniel Serwer. Thank you. It really is a pleasure and a privilege to be here with John. Uh, I've missed him in Washington. Uh, and as I'll take a few shots at him later, let me open by saying that I enormously enjoyed his account of T. Lawrence. It's interesting and compelling. I recommend it highly. Uh, but we wouldn't be here at Cato discussing it if it were only about Lawrence in the Arab Revolt. It's also, as John has made clear, about the uh, question of nation building, a, a, um, a, an enterprise he at least regards as having been undertaken in foolhardy ways in the past by the U.S. I'm going to surprise you by saying that, uh, that I agree with what I take to be uh, the main point of his book, to be successful I would call it in state building. He says nation building, but I think state building is the right term for what we try to do. Work with existing cultural realities and not against them. Three things puzzle me. His notion that this is a new discovery, that it is not, in fact, the conventional wisdom, and that it is a simple and easy formula to apply. Now, this should surprise you because I'm supposed to represent the other perspective, the evil one in John's book, the one that tries to build states from the top down, ignores local context, fails to recognize the importance of organic culture, and foolishly leads the United States into quixotic efforts to export Jeffersonian democracy in every direction. Let me uh, dispose of that notion, the, the notion that working... Uh, with rather than against local culture is a great discovery. U.S. Institute of Peace, for whom I've worked this past decade, just last week published guiding principles for civilian doctrine for stabilization and reconstruction operations. The first overarching principle is host nation ownership and capacity. It is, in fact, mildly embarrassing to me how closely our discussion of this principle tracks with what John recommends. Let me read just one sentence. Every region, every state, and every village has unique economic, cultural, religious, political, and historical characteristics. In assessing the local context, always carefully consider all these characteristics. Uh, other 
major principles in the book include legitimacy and political primacy, two points uh, John has uh, just made. But lest you think that uh, we talk about something different than what John means, let me offer just two examples, concrete examples. In October 2003, when the Heritage Foundation, where John was working, was still offering up the notion that Iraq's central government would pay for its own straightforward reconstruction, a senior fellow at USIP published in the New York Times an op-ed on victory in Iraq, one tribe at a time. I recommend this op-ed to this day. He, in fact, is Israel's leading expert on Iraq and well worth uh, hearing from. About the same time, USIP published its first of many pieces on the importance of the informal, call it tribal if you like, justice system in Afghanistan, a notion that uh, rejected by the state bill, not by, by USIP, the importance of the informal justice system, but by the then Bush administration, which was still trying to kill al-Qaeda and get out quickly. You don't have to be T. Lawrence to know about the importance of local culture, speaking the local language, knowing the local social structure. My own view is that this is well-established, even if not well-practiced. Ignored in particular by the Bush administration until David Petraeus decided to support the Sahwa, a decision John quite rightly applauds, and ignored in Afghanistan until very recently when the Obama administration decided to undertake a belated counterinsurgency strategy. But that doesn't mean it's easy to know how to apply your knowledge of local culture. John's book starts with a critique of what he sees as failure in the Balkans because of the top-down state building. That was not always his view, by the way. He wrote in 2005, there is good and bad news from the Balkans, but mostly good. But let's not worry about consistency, that hobgoblin of small minds. Let's worry about how we follow local leads. Would it be the lead of the Albanians in Kosovo who wanted independence or the Serbs in Serbia who wanted to hold on to their historic homeland? Or would it be the Serbs in Bosnia who'd prefer independence for their Republika Serbsko, or the Bosniaks who wanted a unified state? Or would it be the Croats who would like their own mini-state within Bosnia? What we, in fact, did throughout the Balkans was an effort to satisfy all of the above using an elaborate combination of local and national governance so complex that Bosnia is not likely to be able to fulfill its obligations as a NATO or EU member without important constitutional reform. We did not export Jeffersonian democracy. I would note that Lawrence seems to have been acutely aware of the difficulties in determining when just which local lead is organic and which is not. He chose Faisal as the man he wanted to back as the leader of the Arab revolt, but he knew full well that Faisal would not be the right man much beyond the Hejaz. In Damascus, maybe, as John argues, but certainly not in Baghdad, where he ended up with the support of Lawrence. Nor are local leads, even when you can find them, necessarily easy to follow. The Obama administration is having a hard time reconciling itself to President Karzai. 
election fraud, palling around with warlords and the whiff of Poppy, are making it hard to see how he's going to be a viable partner. But at least some would argue that all of the above are organic to Afghanistan, along with mistreatment of women and murderous thuggery. But I shouldn't look so far afield for difficult judgments on how to follow local leads. John offers his own dubious conclusions, suggesting strongly that he thinks Arabs and Kurds, Sunni and Shia in Iraq, just can't live together, and that forcing them to do so is an example of the kind of top-down state building Lawrence would scorn. This is amusing, because the people I know who know Iraq well universally reject that proposition. The only major political figure who has seriously entertained it is Vice President Biden, but he gave up on it long ago. I'm not going to claim to be a great expert on Iraq myself. I've only been there four times this year and half a dozen times before that. I've only studied Arabic for three years or so, and I wouldn't want to use it. And my contacts with Iraqis are largely with the political elite. But when Peter Galbraith asks whether I think the Arab parts of Iraq can stay together, the answer is an unequivocal yes. And I say that having returned from uh, discussing the matter with something like 10% of the Iraqi parliament just last week. Of course, that leaves open for question the Kurdish part of Iraq, the question on which the jury is still out. But is there anyone who doubts the United States' interests will be more at risk if Kurdistan makes a stab at independence? Does John want to advocate that we follow the organic lead of the Kurds into an experiment that could endanger the territorial integrity of Turkey, Iran, and Syria, not to mention Iraq? John, you tell a story very well. Your book is a good read, one that led me happily to reread a good deal of Lawrence and to realize how dramatically the Arab world has changed since his time, which was centered on, when it was centered on Bedouin tribes in an unforgiving desert before the discovery of oil. But I'm afraid that your points about nation building are neither entirely original nor easily applicable. Lots of us understand that no one should attempt nation state building who lacks the resources cultural understanding, legitimacy, and will to make it work. But Lawrence, I would note, did not have all those factors when he began his effort. Certainly, President Bush didn't either. And President Obama finds himself pondering what to do in the middle of two wars he inherited. Unfortunately, beginning the world over again is not an option. The president and you, John, can only start from here and go forward. You can advocate that we drop the efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan, but then you'll need to live with the consequences. Or we can try to get them done better than in the past by following some of the good advice you derived from Lawrence, but which I think was fairly readily available elsewhere as well. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, thanks to John for coming to Cato, writing this book. Thanks to Daniel for his comments and to Justin for moderating this event. Um, I want to echo what Daniel said at the very beginning. This is a, uh, this is a great read. Uh, 
a, a lot of fun. Uh, I uh, have been prompted myself to uh, revisit the 27 articles and have added seven pillars of wisdom to my already pretty long reading list. But based on everything that John has said, uh, it is it is higher on my list than it otherwise would have been. Um, I want to make two main points in my remarks today um, that are somewhat narrowly construed, but hopefully speak to a larger issue. Um, the first pertains to Lawrence as a person, Lawrence as a man. John, um, th- this is not a biography, and John rightly explains why this. we do not need yet another just biography of T.E. Lawrence. Um, but he draws on the relevant parts of Lawrence's uh, youth and, and young adulthood to make some very important points. And the one that comes through as clearly as any is loyalty, the importance of loyalty, and in particular, Lawrence's personal loyalty to Faisal. And we see, tragically, how this loyalty to Faisal ultimately uh, overrode Lawrence's best instincts with respect to nation-building. We've already talked about that. John talked about and that Daniel talked about the importance, the crucial importance of local control, of local elites, and working through local elites. Um, but as a, as a former officer in the U.S. military, briefly, um, there was a more ominous tone to this. And I have to, I, I, I'm a little reluctant to go into this because you do come away with a very good feeling about Lawrence, the man. But let's be honest here. Uh, he was engaged for a period of time in an open revolt with his own government. He was defying the very orders that he was tasked with carrying out. Now, this was during wartime remember, and he was a commissioned officer in the British military. Lesser men have been shot by firing squads or hanged for lesser offenses. Um, and, and this is clearly insubordination and maybe even treason. And I use that word carefully. Now, John makes a convincing case that the policy that Lawrence was tasked with implementing was clearly a jumble of contradictions. It was so contradictory, in fact, that that serves as exculpatory evidence to merit a commutation of Lawrence's sentence, say, for example, from death uh, by execution to life imprisonment. But I contend that it was not sufficiently exculpatory to warrant him a full pardon. Hey, two wrongs don't make a right. That British policy was shot full of contradictions does not excuse the contradictions inherent in Lawrence's highly imperfect alternative. Wow, that highly imperfect alternative, which we are continuing to struggle with. Let's dwell on it for a minute, shall we? That plan, hammered into reality during the Cairo Conference of March 1921, has staked out the borders of the states in the region that persist to this day. Essentially an altered, correct? I mean, really not altered substantially since then. Kuwait, one of the modern, you know, one of the few exceptions. Lawrence placed his friend Faisal, Hashemite king, Sunni Muslim, on the throne of a state constructed out of whole cloth and populated by Arabs, Kurds, Turkmen, and others, and both Shia and Sunni Muslims. Faisal was installed as king despite the fact that he had never stepped foot in the territory. Uh, he didn't know the tribes, didn't know the leaders, didn't understand the tri- terrain. He even spoke a different dialect of Arabic. In one fell swoop, Faisal's ascension to the throne undermined principles of local power but in self-determination that formed the core of Lawrence's philosophy. 
When this old-fashioned imperialism was imbued with a modicum of local acquiescence, we had a British-controlled Arab Council of Ministers that asked Faisal to be king. How how imaginative that is. Uh, A sham, if there ever was one, and exceeded in shammery only by the phony referendum that, as John writes, would have made the Ba'ath Party proud. The whole process did not, of course, actually endow Faisal with any real authority, and in the process, darkened the very concept of democracy is nothing more than a tool of imperialism. Uh, it gets worse, however. The plan gets even worse. Because as a condition of Faisal being planted on the throne in Baghdad, they had to cut a deal with Faisal's brother, Abdullah, uh, in an equally uh, heavy-handed manner and in an even more artificial state to buy him off. And that Abdallah's direct descendants continue to rule in Jordan, formerly Transjordan, is, as John notes, nothing more than ironic. It does not validate the decision to create the phony state or to anoint him ruler. Uh, These problems of these contradictions do not go away. They do not go away as the rulers change. They, in some respects, fester and grow worse. To my second point. Can contradictory policies be justified, and on what grounds? John states on a number of occasions in the book that the deals cut by Lawrence in order to satisfy his personal debts to Faisal undermined a model for successful nation-building. The implication is that if Lawrence had remained true to his principles, the nations created after the fall of the Ottoman Empire would have been more durable and more peaceful. Is that a fair implication, John? Well, I say, perhaps, with an emphasis on the perhaps. Or else, they just might not have existed at all, any state. Because after all, Lawrence had purchased Faisal's loyalties with ill-considered promises that he couldn't keep. Would Faisal have cooperated with the British in overthrowing the Turks? Perhaps he would have for a time. Or perhaps he would have cut a separate deal, which we learned from the book he was actively engaged in the entire time, almost, that he was working with. Lawrence. Why did he not ultimately cut a separate deal with the Turks? Because he believed Lawrence when he told him that he would rule Damascus. Except for, of course, Damascus wasn't Lawrence's to give. Move then from the particular to the general and from the past to the present. Is the problem that Lawrence encountered in 1917, 1918, all the way up to the Cairo conference of trying to mobilize a proxy army to fight on behalf of a foreign ally and then to sustain the promises made to that ally after a separate peace is concluded, are these problems that Lawrence encountered so different from what we are encountering, we the United States are encountering in countless places today? Because let's start with the fact that Lawrence did not set out to create a nation. The nation that he promised to Faisal was a means to an end. He said he was sent as an agent of the British government, uh, engaged in a bloody conflict with the Turks, to find a reliable ally. That was the point. And as I said, he promised him Damascus not because he actually could give it to him or even because Faisal was necessarily the proper ruler of that land, but rather because it's what he needed to promise in order to sustain his allegiance. Um, Then there is the contradiction inherent in self-determination. We are reminded, uh, again, in this book and in many other places, uh, that among the victors of World War I who met at Versailles, uh, some might have been willing to tolerate greater autonomy so long as it didn't threaten their interests. For millions of other subject peoples in 1918 and 19, self-determination that conflicted with the wishes of their colonial overlords was the only kind worth having. So how do you reconcile that contradiction? 
We never have. And herein is the paradox. And I think, frankly, it's the fatal flaw to the entire nation-building enterprise. Dan would prefer, prefer we use state-building, and I understand why that is. But it's a fatal enterprise to the state-building enterprise. When we engage in such actions to achieve a particular end, namely to advance our security, what is the likelihood that the local elites that we favor will be the locals favored by, well, the locals? What's the chance? If that was likely to occur in the absence of outside support, why hadn't it? Well, we hear this in many contexts today. We are told that a leader is popular and deserves our support. We hear this all the time. And that he, it's almost always a he, he's strong and therefore deserving of our support, capable of defeating his rivals and the insurgents that threatened his government. But I ask, if he's so popular with his own people, why does he need our support? If he's so strong, why does he need our guns? Well, in the context of the colonial era, 1918 even, or even the later Cold War, a plausible argument that can be made is that because the other side was getting guns from other people outside. Meh, it's plausible. So our support, we were just merely supporting the legitimate government. We are really the good guys. It's the outside supporters for the other guys that are the bad guys. And, well, you know, sometimes we got it right. Sometimes, eh, not so much. There's far less evidence today, however for such external support, and even more uncomfortably, to the extent that external support is instrumental in sustaining insurgents, the support is coming from U.S. allies, like the Saudis and the Pakistanis. Talk about contradictions. There is one other possible defense for nation state building, sorry, Daniel, and, and I want to give fair uh, uh, space to this. Not that we do it for our purposes to advance our national security objectives, as John, I think, has very ably explained, but rather we do it because it's the right thing, to serve a higher moral purpose. We do well by doing right. Well, I, I attended a Liberty Fund conference. John, remember we went to a Liberty Fund conference many years ago, which formed the foundation for my book. You go to the council meetings to get your foundations. I go to Liberty Fund. I, just by coincidence, just came back from another Liberty Fund conference this past weekend, and we had the misfortune of having to read an awful lot of Woodrow Wilson. <clears throat> a lot. A lot of it. Uh, here's this from Woodrow Wilson's speech to Congress asking for a declaration of war on April 2nd, 1917. He declared many things, only some of which turned out to be true. But he was crystal clear in this message to Congress and what he intended, well, what he wanted people to believe his true intentions were. He declared, we have no selfish ends to serve. We desire no conquest, no dominion. We seek no indemnities for ourselves, no material compensation for the sacrifices we shall freely make. We are but one of the champions of the rights of mankind. Well, you know, I know this makes me a cranky constitutionalist, but I play the part well, I think, and, well, I'm used to it. So let me just point out that in the Constitution, I find no provision for the U.S. military to advance the rights of mankind. I see no evidence that the founders intended that our foreign policy should be guided by this principle that we shall freely make sacrifices for others and expect nothing in return. Well, in fairness, we've long since moved past the conception of the United States as a city on a hill, as a promised land to be emulated. The vision has been replaced by Wilson's crusader state. And in this latter formulation, the U.S. military exists, does exist to serve the needs of others. The success of U.S. foreign policy is measured not by what it does for us, but by what it does for others. We are the world's government, the world's provider of global public goods. I'm skeptical that we should be. 
or that we can. And while Lawrence's principles might provide us for a model for successful nation building in, this, in the future, I see in Lawrence's actual experience, not the principles, a cautionary tale for why we are likely to fail and for why, therefore, we should be adopting a very different foreign policy organized around very different principles. But that's a discussion for another day. I congratulate John for a very fine book and for shedding light on this remarkable man. Thank you very much. That was terrific. The moderator always has two uh, objectives, and that is to finish within some reasonable uh, approximation of the time that was intended and to uh, put a lot on the table uh, for the presenter to deal with. So I think with, with that being said, it's only fair to give John. Do you do, Would you like a couple of minutes to respond sure. to some of what's on the table? Sure. Um, well, this is why this is always great fun, and thank you both uh, for taking the time to read it. And uh, as I hoped, I would be bashed from both sides a little bit, and that's what I knew when we were setting this up, and that, that's a, that's, that speaks well of all of us. Not enough of that in Washington. Um, just quickly, and, and this will be in somewhat soundbite form, please challenge me in questions and outside because I want to get through a lot of it. A lot of stuff was put out there. Uh, let me start with Dan. Um, the, the easy ones. Uh, to begin the world over again, uh, as I've written many, many times and have given interviews about, was an ironic title. The reason that I wrote that title was precisely because I think this is an impossibility, precisely because I think you can't add water and move on. The reason that I picked, to me, our craziest founder, Thomas Paine, uh, to bring that. Remember, he languished in a French jail and would have had his head cut off if Washington hadn't intervened because he thought he could replicate the American Revolution in France as though there were no differences. And that failed pretty badly. Um, that's indeed why I picked it as an ironic title. And in fact, I was doodling to begin the world over again as these folks at the, at the council meeting were talking about how easy it would be to install 21st century women's rights standards with Grand Ayatollah Sistani. I thought this was the height of craziness. Um, I, you know, as to a new discovery, well, I mean, Dan, in a way, you kind of answered what I would say. I mean, no, it's not a new discovery. It's just not very well practiced. I mean, lip service is surely paid, and more so now when somebody like General Petraeus and General McChrystal, who to some extent believe in it, are putting it forward. Then the winds shift in Washington, and everyone sagely says we should take local opinion under account. I think, though, you answered it very honestly that that is one of a series of factors. What I'm saying is it should be the primary factor. It is, always has to be balanced against other things. I would agree with that. Uh, but if it isn't the primary factor, you're likely to get it wrong. It's not that people don't notice it. It's that unlike Lawrence, they don't make it the centerpiece of their philosophy. And there's a slight intellectual sleight of hand, a difference in what I'm saying there to make it primary and to make it merely one of a series of things that we write reports about. I also agree with you entirely that it's not simple. I, I think that's, that's entirely right. And I, I said so in my talk that it wasn't simple. Precisely because it isn't simple, we really shouldn't do it unless we absolutely have to and have very clear interests to move forward about because it's incredibly difficult. And you do end up juggling all these other facts the more you get in. It's much easier to get in than it is to get out. As to what happens to Iraq, I mean, in one sense, the great thing about not living in Washington is I can say I really don't care if any other political person agrees with me or not. They're wrong. And they've been wrong a lot before. And if we look at the list, they will continue to be wrong. If they do this, it strikes me that our form of nation building is a bit like Charlie Brown trying to kick the football from Lucy. That people say, if we just give it more will, more time, more troops, we're going to get the ball. When the problem is that Lucy's going to jerk the ball back. That's the problem. And so I think it's very important to say, yes, Vice President Biden and Les Gelb helped think through that. But the bottom line is, 
I wouldn't forcibly partition anybody. My point is they may indeed end up partitioned. The verb tense is what matters. I would not be for partitioning Iraq. I would not be for keeping Iraq together. That's up to the people who live there. That is precisely the point that I'm making. Um, as to as my record on, on nation building, I mean, I think most people who know me, and, and if you look at the body of work I've done, it sounds like a Washington guy. I hate saying this. But I left Heritage because of my disagreements with them over the Iraq war. I think it's very, very clear that I left because of my strong disagreements. And unlike most people, I paid a terrible price for that. I lost my job. I lost my wherewithal. I had to go on with my life. I moved to Europe. Uh, it turned out that those were all really, really good things. But when it comes to actually putting your, your neck on the line for something you believe in, I think I'm, I'm pretty well covered there. Um, as to what's going on and what happens to the Kurdish area, I think that is indeed a very key question. And it, and it is up to them. And how we respond to what they do, I think, is absolutely a vital point. But that they will or will not do that and that we should not be in the business of forcing them to stay in that society, which indeed happened at the Cairo conference. It was discussed, but in the end they jammed them in for the simple reason that they needed the oil money. And they said, what are, how are we going to pay for this place? We have to have the Kurds in, so we have a piggy bank to pay for it. It was very early days for oil, but even then they knew it was a very important thing indeed. Um, so that would be my quick rundown on dance points. Chris, thank you for actually bringing up what I think is the most interesting point in writing the book, which is the tension and the one question that I try to answer throughout it. Why did Lawrence, having invented this wonderful philosophy, totally ignore it in Cairo? I mean, that was the, the writing challenge, because he did. And going in, I didn't have an answer, which is always good. I had no pre-cooked answer. I honestly had no idea why he did that. The answer as to why he did that was because in the end, and you write about your unease about as a former officer is correct, he decided that what happened personally mattered to him more than what happened to the interests of his country. And as I cite many sources, he said that. We need to leave this thing with clean hands, meaning I need to leave this thing with clean hands. And so when he said, well, Faisal doesn't speak the dialect, okay, I can let that go. He doesn't know anyone in Iraq, okay. I can let that go. He does mention he'd much rather he were king of greater Syria, where he did have these legitimacies. But in the end, he decided my philosophy has to take a backseat to what I owe emotionally to Faisal. And that, indeed, is a very dangerous idea. It's well-meaning. I understand why he did that. But it led to a lot of misery in the region. And I would argue any hope of Lawrence's philosophy proving dominant went out the window when he made this trade. And I think you're right to sniff that out as the problem. I think that's exactly, exactly right. Um, I think that it's fine to use state building to achieve national ends, but I think, Chris, where we, where, where we agree is that you very quickly end up picking winners and losers, which is one of Lawrence's points. You have to say, we may get Karzai and a bunch of very unsavory warlords, and that may be the best outcome that we're going to get. Is that in our interests or not? Should we give them technical help? Should we give them police help? Should we do whatever? But you have to, st if, you, if you get in and immediately say, to promote our national interests, I'm going to promote a person, I think you're almost certainly doomed to fail. I think a better example, again, is the German example, where honestly Adenauer is one of about four or five guys who might have been chancellor, and nobody much cared which of those four or five guys was chancellor. All of them would be fine, and Germany not in ruins would be better than Germany in ruins led by somebody we picked. I mean, it was about that simple. They didn't think it through a whole lot. But I mean, at that level, I think I can square the circle. Where you're absolutely right, though, is very quickly you end up 
moving toward, you know, it's all about President Diem. He's a wonderful leader. It's all about President Karzai. It's all about President so-and-so. And then you begin to interfere in other people's legitimacy. And that fails because then that guy is seen as your stooge, which is exactly what happened to Faisal. He began seen as the British stooge and not an independent Arab leader. And indeed, his grandson was murdered by people who said were Arab nationalists. And Nuri Said is just an old stooge of the British. They went full circle from being freedom fighters and having local legitimacy in Arabia to being lackeys of the British. And within 30 years, the entire family or the Iraqi branch of the family is wiped out. So I, I think that's a very close line to trade. Intellectually, can I argue that? Sure. Practically, in a policy way, I think it gets a lot more difficult. That's excellent. I'm glad that we were able to, to clear the table. Let me now throw it open to questions and answers, if we can. The normal rules apply, if you will. Please wait for the microphone uh, to be brought to you. Identify yourself in any ins institutional affiliation you may have, and please keep the questions short. Direct them to a particular commentator so we can take as many as possible. The gentleman in the blue blazer I saw was the first uh, person with his hand up. Hi, Jerry Lipson, uh, Alexandria um, Republican Party, uh, retired from the House International Relations Committee. Uh, my question, and I'm kind of stupid on this one, um, why did Faisal wind up in Baghdad instead of Damascus in the first place? Okay. Uh, because it seems in hindsight that if he wound up in, in, ba in Damascus, a lot of our current problems, uh, we wouldn't be seeing them. Thank you. Boy, are you preaching to the choir. Um, I, I asked myself that 50 times in writing this. Um, basically, if you read the book, it has to do with the British in typical fashion, and they did this, by the way, with uh, the Jews of the time as well as the Palestinians. The British have a great talent for offering the same bit of land, which isn't theirs, to two separate sets of people. And that's what they did. They whispered to both the French and to Faisal, you know, we'll let you take over Damascus. I read a whole chapter on how they basically lied. And I use the word lied because they lied. And when it came due, these bills, these conflicting bills came due, they tried to sort it out of the Versailles Peace Conference. And after a lot of maneuvering there, in the end, with the American withdrawal through our good friend Woodrow Wilson screwing up the League of Nations, and with America heading in a direction where they wouldn't play a big role in Europe, the British said, my choice is between a Germany that has now been humiliated but not destroyed, and it's going to come after me, who I need the French immensely as a neighbor to fight this off in the long run, or I need a bunch of Arabs in a place I know nothing of. And much as we owe Faisal, and as bad as we feel about it, we're junking that commitment. And by junking that commitment, Faisal didn't go quietly. They fought a battle at a place called Maesalen uh, in May 1920. Pardon me, June 1920, July, July 28th, 1920, um, about the fight. The French came in with their guns. They actually gassed the Arabs uh, and destroyed Faisal's kingdom. But it was destroyed by this imperial decision. It was not destroyed from within. It was utterly functioning and utterly functional. And they put Faisal actually on a, at, at a train station, and he went into exile um, in, in, uh, and came back. And so the British, when Lawrence said, well, we've got this open throne, we kind of owe the, and I know the British, I went to university there, we kind of owe the guy one, we kind of feel bad about it. I mean, he is an Arab, after all, and they're Arabs. Let's give him the throne of Baghdad. It really was, on Churchill's point of view, that simple. And, of course, it ignored the entire lesson. The one person who should have known better is Lawrence. Uh, that that wouldn't work. But Lawrence emotionally was so tied to paying his debt to Faisal, an English schoolboy pays his debts. 
It's one of the things that was taught to me at school. And uh, the reality of that was that that overrode that, and that's kind of how you get from A to B. The, as you say, the lost promise, whether you believe or not, of Faisal being king of Damascus was utterly missed by Western powers, uh, and Lawrence lost that tragic battle. I, I would only note that... Uh, something that hasn't been mentioned, which is my personal doubts that that Lawrence conceived of himself as being in the nation-building business. And insofar as he did, he saw it at least in part as a top-down business because he certainly uh, believed in monarchy. He certainly believed that uh, Faisal should be king in Damascus and that it was sufficient to put him there, and you didn't have to do a hell of a lot more than that in the nation-building category. There's a distinction to be made here between an insurgency, which he definitely did lead, and, and nation-building, which is really quite a different activity. <clears throat> Let's go – well, we'll come right down here to the other gentleman in the blue blazer if we have a microphone, please. Uh, Michael Lame, Rethink the Middle East. I had a question about uh, Lawrence and the Zionists of the day and Israelis and Palestinians uh, now. Uh, There was, I believe, a meeting between Faisal and Lawrence and uh, Chaim Weizmann, then the leader of the uh, Zionist movement in a hotel in London, as I recall. Um, I I wanted you to comment about how Lawrence saw the conflict or possibilities of cooperation between uh, Jews and Arabs in the Middle East then, and what lessons about nation building and so forth do you see as applying to Arab-Israeli or particularly uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict or U.S. support for Palestinian nation building? Yeah, there was indeed. That's exactly right. There was there was a meeting. Faisal at the time um, talked to Lawrence, and, and kind of this is more Faisal driven than Lawrence. And of course, in any partnership, it's a Lennon McCartney issue. You're not exactly sure who did what. You know, yes, John tends to write the, the lyrics that people like, and Paul writes the show tunes people like, and that tended, not always, but it's the way. Lawrence tended to look out at Versailles for the broader kind of geostrategic arguments to make that Faisal didn't care as much about. But Faisal cared about regional politics a great deal because Faisal thinks he's going to be king of greater Syria. And you have to proceed on the basis of what he thought, even though it didn't work out that way. And so they bring in Mr. Weitzman and they say, look, the, the, the Jewish immigration is, is, is coming into the area. We can see in the long run that this could be a problem or not. Uh, let's nip this in the bud and work out a way that we can work together and that we say we're comfortable with that. Unlike almost any other Arab leader at the time, Faisal was absolutely comfortable with what was happening and, in fact, said someday that might lead to another state. And that's okay. We can work that out because if the Arab needs have been met on the greater Syria question and other groups come into the area, and and also we can then apply the Lawrence principle more broadly, and we'd be fine with that. Yes, we're going to have to work together and work some modalities out, but that can be done. That is actually an argument, and I I didn't write about That's a whole other book, and I think I wrote that in one of the drafts, and they cut it out. Um, But... That, that is a very interesting kind of point of departure to look at other things because they were very open to working out some sort of alliance. And, in fact, Weizmann supported Faisal being king, which is extraordinary when you think of it. He said, this is a great idea. 
we can work with these guys. They have local legitimacy. They're for us, uh, my group, you know, immigrating in a larger group, and we're fine with that, and we'll work that out. I mean, it was a really lost opportunity, Faisal, in a lot of ways because of that magic legitimacy. Um, just one point about Dan that links to that. Um, yeah, I don't think he cared about monarchy one way or the other. I think what he cared about was legitimacy. Uh, and in some parts of the world, you know, if monarchs are legitimate, and some parts of the world are not. But that ties into where this deal could well have been, been struck. I think what it does say is that we have to look at actually politically comfort levels, and we have to tie this to local people. One thing I would say about any agreement between the Palestinians um, and the Israelis is that there, it has to be subject to some sort of referendum, hopefully two, because if you don't do that, the minute something goes wrong, you say, well, I, it's been imposed on me. And that, of course, means it doesn't have staying power. Um, and so I think that's rather an interesting point. John, can I follow up on a, on a question on this same point? You stress the importance of Damascus as a symbolic place. Uh, you also obviously talk about the importance of Mecca and Medina. Does this, does this discussion around this, uh, the, the Jewish immigration and Weizmann and the potential state, uh, you don't talk a lot about Jerusalem in the book. And does that, does that imply that, 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 again, these places have have acquired a, uh, a sense that's very different from what it was, uh, you know, 100 years ago. You know, in a way, I think that's right. Um, I think that people cared about different places. I mean, for Faisal, I mean, there's no doubt the seven pillars read is right. When they first meet, and, um, you know, in the great movie, you know, Alec Guinness is sitting there having tea, and, and Peter O'Toole saunters in. And he says, what do you think of Wadi Safra? And he says, I like it well, but it is far from Damascus. And immediately all the Arabs kind of do a double take. Because, of course, in their dreams, this reminds them of when they were a great power, ran the world. It is totemic for lots of other things. And at the time, Mecca and Medina, this is our best hope. This man is, of course, the repository of Islam, which we all do care about. And so that's an important culture. That's the reason Faisal's a prince. He's directly related to Muhammad uh, through his daughter Fatima, and that this was brought up and very important. Um, but yes, it was much more about Damascus. Jerusalem, which of course has a broader group, when Allenby marches into Jerusalem, uh, and he walks in, you know, bareheaded, and he, he, he again does the cultural thing. He's Lawrence's boss, General Allenby. And he marches in, he take, gets off for the horse, and he goes and prays to various groupings. You know, I think, I think even down, there were Maronites that he was praying. You know, he had to work out who to, who to talk to, and it was a real nightmare for him. You forgot someone, and he said, well, invariably I will. Uh, but I'm sorry. But I think that looking at things totemically and how those have changed is very interesting because I do think it did. The, the Faisal was very relaxed about Jerusalem, very relaxed about Jerusalem, and said, well, of course, for Jews around the world, this is fundamental. And we can do a horse trade. We can work this out. Because what I really care about, I now I think I'm going to get, which is Damascus. So, yes, I think, that the, I think when we all say we felt this way forever, if you know some history, maybe not forever. <laughs> We should move back to the back. There's a gentleman up against the wall over there. Thank you. Yeah, I'm Jim Byrne. I'm a freelance writer here in town. Um, he raises the, uh, the, the point of uh, the religious aspects of that. Currently, uh, our policymakers have to take seriously the pronouncements of the leading uh, uh, religious leaders of, uh, of Islam. Did any of that go on in this context of uh, you know what you describe in the book? Well, re really interestingly, uh, one of the things Lawrence gets very wrong, and, and I pointed this out. I mean, you know, he I think that's a great philosophy, and he's a fascinating man, but he surely wasn't perfect. 
Um, one of the things he gets very wrong is they back the wrong horse in Arabia. They're, they're basically three tri tribal chieftains fighting for control of Arabia. And Ibn Saud wins. He, he's back in the Hashemites. And, and, and old King Hussein, who's a nightmare, and one of the reasons he finally basically has a mental breakdown is over having to work with King Hussein. Um, in the end, Ibn Saud wins. And the reason he wins is that he is behind, behind him is a, is a religious revival. That, in effect, the Hashemites say are not terribly religious uh, in terms of their followers. Uh, King Hussein is. The boys are less religious. Uh, but they are as keeper of the holy places. They think we've got that covered. We don't need to worry about it. Whereas the Wahhabi religious revival that, that comes out of Ibn Saud, and he takes this new fervor in eastern Arabia, and they attack western Arabia and beat the Hejazis, which are the Lawrence people. And so that really comes in after. Lawrence totally mis misunderstood this, didn't see this coming. And in fact, he wanted the Hashemites to run all of Arabia, which in the end, they certainly didn't have legitimacy to do. I mean, that was a mistake. But he missed the religious element that is now much more a part of what we do. So yes, I think your point is entirely valid. Um, and in fact, that's a thing he never, and later on he wrote, I don't understand what's going on. Um, he simply didn't intellectually get the fervor of that because he didn't feel it, frankly. Uh, let's come to, well, let's go back right there on the back of the front section, the woman in the green sweater, it looks like. Thank you. I'm Helen Rafael, Resources for the Future. Uh, I'd like to go back to the lessons for today of the conduct of the war itself by Lawrence. It seems to me that you've said that he approached each tribal group in turn and got them to, tur to um, turn against the overlord Turks, who were, after all, in a, from a different country, essentially. I don't see the application today if we approach group by group within Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and so forth. Who is the outside group that they would want to throw off aside from America and the Europeans? Well, it, 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 I mean, let me start with your last point because and, and go back. I mean, I, I think... Yes, it's very important, and the British found this in Iraq, and I write this in the book. You come in as liberators in, in 1918, and by 1920, there's an armed insurrection against the British where they have to move 25,000 troops from India. There are no reserves, by the way. The British have absolutely no reserves, and they move these troops from India to quell the thing, drop poison gas, burn villages, do some very nasty stuff to make this work, and that's Lawrence's opportunity. He says, aha, I can stop these top-down people I don't like very much. Uh, and then institutes a different form of top-down building, is the irony. Because, uh, yeah, who are the Turks today? I mean, I, I, to answer, and I think this is back to Dan's point, you know, comment, which is a good one, how does an insurgency relate to nation building? I mean, what's that? I think it's a very good point. How it relates is that I think, I think where I disagree with Dan is that far more, there is no direct analogy, that in every analogy it's not perfect and I'm not going to make somebody up. I don't think it's us. Where it works is the unit of politics, and the unit of politics was the tribe, and Lawrence figures this out. He's not looking for greater Syrians to talk to. He says, I need in northern Syria to talk to the, the Rawala, as the tribe, in Arabia, the Hawatat, the Billy, the Harb, the Juhayma, all these other groups. In Iraq, where this works and still works, and Lawrence did think of himself as knitting these groups together into something, and if you read the 27 articles, it's, that's very clear. The commonality is if you talk in Iraq, for instance, or, okay, make it Afghanistan, 
If you don't talk about the Pashtun on both sides of the Afghanistan-Pakistan border and you see this nice line that was drawn by Westerners, you're missing entirely how things work there. So that is how I think that it is entirely applicable. You have to look at the unit of politics country by country. If you look at Africa, it's tribes. Why has Africa been such a nightmare? Because we don't have Zululand, Ibuland, Hosaland, etc. We have things that the Kaiser and Queen Victoria made up and put in. This is the fundamental problem. So where it is applicable is the unit of politics. Is there a Turkish overlord? No. But do we look at the right unit of politics? No. And is this about state building? Yes. I, I, would, uh, I would go a little bit farther, actually, and say that in some respects what Petraeus managed to do with the Sahwa was to get them organized against what was seen as a foreign influence, which was al-Qaeda in Iraq. And, uh, you know, it's not the Turkish overlord, obviously. It's not the same kind of colonial presence. But I, I do think that distaste for the foreigner was an important aspect of the Sahwa. I also think that distaste for us is an important force in Iraqi politics today. And that, in fact, uh, in the last couple of years, the um, the the setting of the of the deadlines for the U.S. to get out was an extremely important factor in reducing uh, conflict among the political forces in Iraq. They all agreed that they wanted a timeline. That's what they finally convinced the Bush administration, that they really wanted a timeline. And that has been a, a unifying force in Iraq. We're looking for that unifying force in Afghanistan. Some people want to make it Al-Qaeda, others say, no, it's the Taliban. Yeah, but the Taliban are Pashtun. They're not, they're not foreign. How can you make it the Taliban? The Taliban have to be in the tent, not outside the tent. But that's part of the debate today, to find that thing against which you can, you can organize uh, Afghan politics. And uh, it's going to be very, very difficult because it's not obvious where it comes from. And just very briefly, I mean, the one thing, and I say this, the one universal, and I'm very much a particularist, but I think one of the universals that, is, that does exist in the world is nobody likes being told by foreigners what to do. Okay, I mean, I think across the board, if somebody comes in and tells you what to do, that's probably a very bad idea and, un and likely to unify other people against you in a countervailing way. I think that's for sure. And I agree with your analogy. I think it does work. I think the Al-Qaeda one does work. Uh, can I <clears throat> add something to this discussion? I think, it, I think this is applies with counterinsurgency as being the, the, other ha the other side of the, of the nation-building coin, state-building coin, because it's always been frustrating to me that um, – any outside power will be able to imbue a government fighting against an insurgency with legitimacy. I mean, this is the this is the crux of nation of of uh, counterinsurgency as currently being practiced. That we are going to uh, somehow uh, endow a government or uh, w with legitimacy. I guess my point is, I'm perfectly content with the with the U.S. Army's ability to fight an insurgency in Montana. I, I understand how that works, like because our government has legitimacy here in Montana. I don't really understand how it works in Kabul or Kandahar or, uh, you know, Kunduz. I, I don't understand. Please help uh, but, me out. Yeah, I think, I think there is help for that. I mean, I think what you have to appreciate is that even among the Iraqis most anxious for the United States to get out, there is a strong desire for us to fix it first. 
And in Afghanistan, it's much more apparent that the Afghans regard our presence as a liberating presence. It's also been a painful presence in terms of impact on civilian life. And uh, I think the question is, is the intervention welcome or not? Uh, I don't doubt for a moment that the United States can do things in Iraq or in Afghanistan if the locals give us some degree of legitimacy. And I think they have. And the, the big problem we've got is that we keep on doing things that undermine that degree of legitimacy. But, but again, Dan, the, the issue is which locals? Because we found locals in Iraq who were willing to tell us both before and after that they were glad that we were there. And I think most of them were telling the truth. And the Kurds to this day probably would be perfectly content for the United States to remain, especially if we if we were doing it to protect their, their nascent state. Um, again, I, I think we're having a similar problem in Afghanistan. Who exactly is, is supportive of of our presence. I have no doubt that many people are, but the people who are supportive of the presence aren't the problem. Of course, they're not the ones that are shooting at us. That's what the definition of an insurgency is. The people who are who are resisting violently the established political order, a political order that now is buttressed by the United States. I think there's another danger, which is we used to joke at Heritage that people were AEI compliance. And Shalabi was the greatest example. They all have been to Oxford with me, and they wear lovely suits, and we would all vote for them. And that's exactly the problem. They have, do they have legitimacy locally was a question that almost never came up. They told us what we wanted to hear. They were one of us. We'd go have a drink afterwards, and I'd say, what a fine fellow. Does that mean that person has legitimacy on the ground? I mean, I think that comes back to the key being, as Lawrence said, local knowledge, local knowledge, local knowledge, not the guys who are part of Davos, man, as we call it, go to the Davos conference, watch CNN, and sit there. Maybe that doesn't hold a whole lot of water in Lesotho. It's important to see the world is slightly more complicated. I think we have time for one more question, uh, and we'll come down in the front here to the gentleman in the green jacket. Hi, uh, I'm Tom Curry. I'm with MSNBC. Um, you, at one point in your talk, Mr. Holtzman, you used the phrase absolutely vital American national interest. And I wasn't clear whether you meant when there is an absolutely vital national interest, then we the United States must engage in nation-building or state-building. Uh, and then how do you define that? In, in Afghanistan, does the United States have a vital national interest? And if so, what is it? And if not, why not? A nice, easy one to end the day. Uh, <laughs> um, Yes, I think that we should do it. I mean, I think this is a, I mean, this is where I square the circle between my two panels. I, I think Dan would do it almost always, and Chris would do it almost never. Um, and I'd say it depends, which is a good Jeffersonian realist view. Um, I wouldn't do it very much, as I make it very clear in the book. Germany and Japan, as I make clear in the book, are indeed vital national interests where we did need to do it. I don't think, to me, there is a doubt about that. After the war, leaving them as failed states was a really bad idea in a Cold War environment. Uh, it was sold as such to the Truman guys, and I think that made good sense. It was, it was sold as such that if we indeed let that go, the communists will take over Germany, and, and we had to do some funny things in Italy as it was. Uh, the French were on the line. It was a very freezing winter in the U.K. We need to stop this somewhere. Let's go in and deal with this. But again, it was very, very vague and light. It wasn't specific. Be capitalist. Be decentralized. Uh, we really don't want to be here very long. We're going to send some bases, but we want to politically get out of here. And by 1952, they do. Seven years, they're out. Japan, same deal. 
Japan is vital for obvious reasons. If you look at sea lanes, uh, it's vital that we get involved in there. In terms of Afghanistan, I would argue, by the way, all the modern ones that we named that I listed in a row are not. I would argue they're not, and now I'm swinging sides entirely with Chris. Um, I don't think they are, and I think we should do this only rarely, as I say in the book, and when we do it, we should explain it ahead of time to people, not lie to them about how easy it is, uh, but we should do it only rarely. I don't think Afghanistan and going in in the way that General McChrystal, who I have respect for, um, uh, I, think, I think it's too late, even if it were to work, uh, and I don't think it would work. So that would be an unequivocal no. Um, I think that something along the lines of the Biden plan, you know, we, we have to kill the Al-Qaeda guys there. There I do have, think we have an interest. Uh, I think Pakistan, we have some interests, uh, but we don't have to nation build them. We have to work with them. Slightly different terminology there. Um, so in Afghanistan, I think we're making yet again the same mistake. I think the president is likely to do what people do in Washington, which is split it down the middle, which is the worst possible outcome, thereby alienating everyone and dooming the policy to failure. It won't be enough troops, so the Westmoreland crowd will say, well, they didn't give us enough, so let's do this again sometime. It will be too much for people like me. We will limp along. We will fail. And I think that would be an unmitigated disaster for the United States, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book. Let me just uh, correct the impression that I would always do. Uh, I, I'm in an awkward situation. I, when you do it, I would always say, do it right. And uh, I offer our book as a good guide to uh, how to do it right. Uh, it's the first civilian doctrine available uh, in the United States on how to do these things right. And I, I think you know, to be fair, uh, it, it, it is consonant with much of what John advises uh, about what you should do when you do it. Uh, the fact that you shouldn't do things for which you don't have the resources and political will seems to me elementary. But I would point out that it is not President Obama or General McChrystal who put us into Afghanistan. I can't. No, I can't. That's everything. All right, then. Please join me in thanking our presenter and our commentators today. And please join us upstairs where we'll have books available for purchase and for signing and delicious sandwiches and Diet Cokes. Thank you.